This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. Every day is an adventure in football at the moment. Game-changing issues are being discussed, and no one knows quite where we're heading. One thing we can cling to, however, is the resumption of the Premier League. It won't quite be business as usual because of the lack of crowds but Saturday's Merseyside derby requires no hype. Liverpool, of course, make the short journey to Goodison across Stanley Park as champions. Everton are in form and in the mood to assert themselves. Now, Aid, can you see them winning local bragging rights? Well, it's been a while, hasn't it, since Everton did beat their local rivals, and but they'll never have a better chance, will they? The bookmakers don't seem to give them a lot of hope. I, I checked out the odds and, and Liverpool are still odds on to win this game. You can get a good price on Everton. And and for me, that's a surprise because the form book tells you that, that Everton should at least be the equal of, of Liverpool in this match. I mean, they're, they're playing fantastically well, have to say, particularly as an attacking force. And when you think about Liverpool and their problems, particularly against Villa with that high line, then you've got Richarlison, who's fantastic at, at making those runs in behind. We know that James Rodriguez is outstanding at picking out those runs. And Calvert-Lewin, despite being a target man, essentially, he's one of the quickest forwards in the Premier League. He's rapid. So so they certainly have the tools to hurt Liverpool. For me, the, the issue they've got is, is a slight lack of confidence in goal with Jordan Pickford. And, and, and I'm still not not really sold on, on the back four, but but what they have got is is a much better midfield that, that will provide better protection this season. For, yeah, for me, Everton have made big, big strides. They'll never get a better chance to, to beat Liverpool, I don't think. Mm. What about that Villa performance and result, Rich? Do you think it, there seems to be a, a consensus that it was a bit of a blip, but since then they've had all that uncertainty about the implications of COVID, Mane, Thiago, Cater, Shakiri, all having positive tests of, of various magnitudes. It does seem to be Everton's big chance, but you've got to look at pedigree here, haven't you? 
Yeah, so as you, you mentioned, the uh, the positive COVID test there, so Mane is back in training, which is a great, it's, a, it's just a big boost for them. I think Thiago's back now as well. And as I said, both players obviously give that added added quality. I think before the international break, they, they were lacking fluency in, in their play. Obviously, the Villa game was, was, a, was a big example of that. But I think the break did kind of come at a good time for them. It allowed them to almost regroup and it probably could work in their favour in terms of stopping that that halt and, you know, allowing them to kind of regroup. Whereas Everton, great momentum before wins on the trot. Maybe the international break, you know, could be a, um, a negative for them and in terms of halting that, that good momentum. So it'll be interesting to see how both teams kind of regroup after the players come back. But as 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 Aid said, you know, never a better chance for Everton to to get one over their rivals. Mm. There have been a lot of five year retrospectives on Jurgen Klopp um, in the media in the last uh, couple of weeks. Aid, what one quality that he possesses do you think Liverpool need the most this season? You know, the obvious one's man management, but is it deeper than that? I think it's it's tactical now and and he's shown that he's got that obviously over the over the past five years he's modified the Liverpool style year on year and made them a stronger team so he needs to to find something new something extra I believe that the acquisition of Thiago Alcantara is probably the the, the, the guy to to take Liverpool to the next level so so yeah he will need to to come up with something new tactically because teams know what to expect now and and we saw with Villa. They, they ruthlessly exploited the high line. What happened in that game? Obviously, a lot of things happened in that game. <laughs> yeah, but from, from a tactical point of view, I just felt that the, the high end of the pitch in, in midfield and, and with the forwards to some degree, they didn't shut down the space well enough. They didn't work as hard. And when that 5% goes and suddenly opponents have time to look up or, or, or that they can get through the line and, and pass the press... Then, then you can really hurt Liverpool, and that's what they haven't allowed teams to do. That they've suffocated them with their with their intensity. So he needs to to get the team to be as intense as they were en route to the title. He needs to add a tactical strand. I think Thiago will do that. And you know what? I also think he needs to show his ruthless side. They're title winners. Well done, brilliant. But that that's gone now. Don't rest on your laurels. And if he sees players that that aren't giving him that 100%. If he sees players that have dropped 2 or 3%, he needs to take them out and he needs to make one or two statements, I think, with his team selections. What about in that context then, Richard, Jordan Henderson? His influence seems to have been missed. He had sort of 10 or 12 minutes in England's game last night. Do you see him playing a key role almost as Klopp's lieutenant on the pitch? 100%. I think when he is on the pitch... Liverpool to see more assured, more calm, both in possession, but also, as you say, the, the kind of the, the pressing, that the energy they, that they have in midfield. You know, Jordan Henderson sets the tone for that. He's the one who sets the standard and and demands the rest from, from his teammates out on the pitch. And I think for Liverpool, it's quite an interesting one because I think they've always been... It's a different dynamic for them this season because they've always been chasing, you know, chasing Man City. And obviously they were ahead for most of last season, but now they're, they're the team to beat. And it, that provides a different dynamic. Teams will, will set up differently against them. And it's, it's a big test of them to, to, to kind of overcome that because it's a completely different challenge being at the top and being the, the team to beat as opposed to being the, the kind of underdog, which almost Liverpool have been over, over the past few years. So I think 
the, the derby will, will be a in, really interesting kind of dynamic to see where they go, really. Because, as you say, are they going to really rise to that challenge or are they we going to see, you know, performances like against Villa where they almost just kind of felt, you know, it was it was a bit of a disaster for them, really. So, yeah, I think, I think you know, Henderson, with regards to kind of setting the tone for, for the kind of standards in the team, his influence is, is key, 100%. What about derby matches? They they do have a you know a unique intensity, or or they usually have it because um, obviously it's a different circumstance now, isn't it? There'll be no fans at, at Goodison Aid, but you know you know as a, as a player yourself, the atmosphere it, it is already set, won't it? Simply because it's the sort of game that players are reminded of when they're on the streets by the fans, even beforehand, or, you know, when they're doing their shopping on, on a Thursday. Well, how many footballers are on the streets? I don't know. I'm not sure how many Premier League <laughs> footballers are out there meeting Well, they all have personal <laughs> shoppers, do they? <laughs> I think they might do. And they might, but, yeah, they, they, I don't think that there are too many treading the streets of Liverpool at the moment, given the Tier 3 status in the city. So I, they, they might be missing that, that input from the fans this weekend. It's such a shame, isn't it? I mean, think how think about the next Merseyside derby. If if fans are allowed back in and it's a full house, or even if it isn't, you know, think of the difference. It's 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 a real shame for the Goodison faithful because they must be loving this Everton team. They must be, and 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 I would you know hazard a guess that the atmosphere would have been one of the best that it's been in many years ahead of this game, given how the, the rising standards under Ancelotti. So yeah, it's. I think the players are doing pretty well, you know, in general, uh, getting themselves up for matches behind closed doors. I do feel that the high goal count is partly because it feels like a training game. I know that argument has been been floated and I do I do see sense in that. But in general, I think the tempo of the games have been very, very high because it could be very, it could be extremely sterile. And, and I don't think we've seen that many sterile matches. Hmm. What about the influence of the international break, which you mentioned in passing you know, a couple of minutes ago, Rich? You've got Calvert-Lewin, can't stop scoring. He's going to come back full of confidence. He's obviously benefited hugely from the influence of Duncan Ferguson. But on the other hand, you've got Jordan Pickford. More high-profile errors, one in the defeat um, to Denmark. Everton have bought a new goalkeeper. Would you be surprised if Carlo Ancelotti takes him out the firing line? I would be, only because if he would have done, I would have expected to see it sooner. I think, you know, he has shown faith in him, but there will become a time where, you know, these mistakes are going to are going to be punished. And, you know, Ancelotti, you know, he's managed at the top level, he's managed top, top players, top goalkeepers, and he's used to managing high-profile squads and he's been ruthless in, in, in his decision-making over the years, hence why he's been so successful. So Pickford will know now that, you know, the, these errors need to, you know, be cut out of his game. And as you say, new goalkeepers come in to provide competition. So if he doesn't back up his ideas, for sure, maybe in the next couple of games, you might see him out the firing line, almost similar to Kepa, because, you know, as, as I mentioned, their backline and, you know, the goalkeeper, it, it will hamper them moving forward. I mean, they've, they've got great 
attacking players going forward, a really solid midfield. And it'll be such a shame to see all that good work go to waste due to sloppy errors at the back. Yeah, this isn't the game, is it? To change your goalkeeper, I don't think. I think I think he's in kind of last chance to live. But, mm. but I, I wouldn't be making a big call like that ahead of, ahead of the derby, Mike. Yeah, I suppose also if you're looking at that defence, you've got Ben Godfrey has come in, and uh, you know I was quite impressed with him at, at Norwich, and I think he, you know, given given time and a bit of sort of training on, I think he'll be an, uh, yeah, a very very good Premier League player, a player that you know well, Aid Theo Walcott has left Everton, he's now back at Southampton. Uh, one assumes he'll make his debut against Chelsea, won't he? Yeah, it'd be nice for him, wouldn't it, to to do that? Look, I think Theo probably did need. That fresh start, he's he's fallen down the pecking order, and and really, if you think about Theo's best position, right side of attack, that's where Hammers is at the moment, and you don't see that, you don't see him being left out too often, given his form, do you? So, so now it's 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 probably the right right move for him, and he's comfortable in the in the surroundings, and I think he will suit their style. I really do. It's will he play up top? Or will he play out wide? I guess he gives Hassan Hootel options. Southampton have got a good record actually uh, against Chelsea. They've they've gone there and and picked up some decent results in in recent seasons. So yeah, this is this is a fascinating match I think at the weekend because you talk about dodgy defences. I, I I certainly feel that that Lampard's back four is is a work in progress. So if Theo hits the ground running alongside Ings, who's been fantastic then they can cause one or two problems there. But yeah, for Theo, it had to happen. Otherwise, this would have been a completely wasted season. And when you get to his age, you just can't sit on the bench for a whole year. You can't have that. So um, I'm glad for him that they got things sorted. Yeah, How do you assess his career? I think he's, <laughs> I think he's overachieved, actually. I, I don't mean that as a massive slight on him. I just don't think he's the most gifted footballer. I think that he's, he's, he was blessed with amazing pace. And he made great use of that as a, as a direct player. Scored a lot of goals down the years. Made some big moments. I just think at the outset he was overhyped. That's not his fault. And then he, he found his level. And, and I think he had a lot of good seasons at Arsenal. And and he should be proud of his achievements for, for Arsenal. But but yeah, hand on heart, he obviously got a lot of England caps. Hand on heart, I think there there have been you know, dozens, you know, maybe hundreds more talented footballers, all-round footballers than, than Theo Walcott. But not many were as quick as him. And that's the reason that he had the career he had. Yeah. I mean, looking at the Chelsea side, Rich, again, we talked about the international dividend or otherwise. I think by common consent, Rhys James was probably England's best player against Denmark until he got himself sent off after the <laughs> final whistle. What's he doing? Uh, yeah. You know, you're Frank Lampard, Richard. How do you deal with that? You Do you just basically say, well, look, you know, let's chalk this one up to experience? Or, you know, how do you deal with young players? I think in a situation like that, as you say, young players are full of enthusiasm, full of, you know, intensity, excitement, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, Lampard will probably sit him down and say, look, you know, there's a standard we need to adhere to. You know, you've crossed the line there. But look, you've played really well. You, you mentioned that, Mike, you know, he's one of England's better players against Denmark. And, you know, we need to see that, that form continue into the season. So, you know, keep your temperament in check because that's really important, you know, especially as you progress. You know, we need to keep, you know, 
if you're suspended, you can't play and you're a valuable member of the team. So, you know, we need to keep that in check. But, you know, your performance was really positive and we need to see more of that moving forward. So I think I think he'll be he'll be happy with him in terms of his general play. But um, yeah, definitely a, a, maybe a slight ticking off just in terms of his conduct. Mm. Where do you think, Rich, Rhys James stands at the moment in the pecking order at right back? It seems that Gareth Southgate's playing about five right backs every game at the moment. But... <laughs> Um, you know, and it seems that he has got the manager's confidence over someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold, which I find a bit strange, to be honest. I agree. You know, we all know what, what Trent can do, especially going forward. I mean, there are question marks about his defensive defensive play, and we did see him exposed at times against Belgium. And, you know, we, we, we know Rhys James has got that, that power on the right-hand side. And he's got great delivery as well. So Southgate probably doesn't, I don't think he knows his best eleven, but I think that's a, that's another topic for another day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it it, nah, it shouldn't really be a toss up. I mean, in, in you know, in, in theory, Trent Alexander Arnold should be the starting right back. But you know, there are question marks about his uh, defensive capabilities against the better teams. He does get exposed, as as we saw. So, as you, as you say, if James can perform like he did the other night, then it will definitely give Southgate something to think about. I just don't think Southgate should be sort of, I don't know, seduced by, you know, some good crosses. I mean, he's got Carl Walker and he's got Trent Alexander-Arnold and he's got a number of other right-backs available to him that are significantly better defenders. And I'm not not hammering Reese James. I just think that Reese James is not an international quality defender yet. And yeah, so it does surprise me, his use of him. But look, good luck to Reese. He, he caught the eye in a very sterile match. Wasn't hard to catch the eye, you know, if he did something decent in that performance. But 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 yeah, in general, I have to say that I think there are three, four, maybe five right backs that are more assured in the defensive aspect. And look, in a major tournament, I think you've got to be careful. I think you need you need guys that that know how to defend. Mm. What about the you know the sensitivity of a management is is always emphasised when he's got one of his key players struggling really badly now what are the implications aid for manchester united and harry maguire uh, he looked lost last night i was you know watching that england game and i made a note and this was probably only after about 10 minutes i was watching maguire because he, he didn't impress me in the previous game no, no. and he was all over the place you know the, the, the his positional sense was wrong and i just i just put uh, one name down and i put phil jones that you know that there was that almost complete collapse of confidence. Now I think that Harry Maguire's head is frazzled at the moment, and for that reason, he should probably be taken out of the firing line. We saw him; he was limping, wasn't he? And it might be the best thing for him to get injured at the moment. It's not great for Manchester United because I understand that that Eric Bailly got injured on international duty as well, which leaves them woefully short, doesn't it, in the in the centre back department? It's not as if. Victor Lindelof was was playing well ahead of the international break. So they're, they're banging trouble in the centre-half department. But yeah, look, sometimes it can be a sanctuary for players that have got off-field off troubles, the pitch. But in Harry's case, it looks like he was taking those troubles onto the field with him. And, 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 and part of the reason behind that is because Manchester United's defensive form has been just astoundingly bad. So he's got no confidence anyway. He's also got the weight of his world, weight of the world on the shoulders. So, look, in an ideal scenario, Harry Maguire sits out the next three or four weeks, gets his head straight, gets fully fit, 
gets his confidence back. But I don't know if Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has the has the backups to, to to be able to do that unless Harry's injured. Yeah, that's the key point, isn't it, Richard? You know, United cannot afford another embarrassment at Newcastle, can they? No, just say you haven't started the season well enough at all. And, you know, you say the, the, the Spurs game, I mean, if people look at 6-1, it's probably something that, that was on the cards, really. I mean, you look at the Brighton game the week before, they hit the woodwork five times, you know, something, you know, they just do not look tight at all. Midfield, not pressing well enough not pressing well enough up front either. So there's issues across the pitch. But uh, as, as I had said, with regards to Maguire, I would want to see him taken out of the firing line. But I say, unless he's injured, can't really afford to not have him in the team because of the, of the lack of depth there. I know we've yeah, got... He's, uh, he's got to ham up know, that injury, yeah. Rich. He's got, he's, got, he's, got, <laughs> <laughs> he's got to just say, like, it's too sore. It's too sore. It. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of right at the top of the hamstring, wasn't it? He was, he was feeling. Yeah. So, you know... You can't take any. He could go out and tear the whole thing, and that's well, that's sign for a while. He's not the know. quickest anyway, yeah. is he? So yeah, ham, hamstrings are, are a bit bit of a problem. On the stats, by the way, for Man United last season, they had a better xG goals against. Basically, they were the second best when it comes to expected goals conceded, behind Manchester City. Actually, uh, Manchester United, they they expected to concede one goal a game. I had a little look this week at, at where they are. They're now officially the worst. They're, they're expected <laughs> to concede uh, two two point five seven goals per game, and that's excluding penalties. So that wow. they're in a mess. They're in an absolute mess at the moment. It's you know they're worse than West Bromwich Albion in terms of their defensive fragility. So uh, yeah, Newcastle. We we talked about Everton having you know what what better chance to beat Liverpool. Same has to apply for for Newcastle in this game at home to to real under-pressure United. Yeah, interesting, because uh, Sam Maxima has signed a new contract till 2026, so that's uh, some long-term planning going on there. There's always still a hint of the short-term crisis at United, Rich. There seems to be a drip feed of negative comment about Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, from the media, hands up, but also, you know, the little snippets are coming out of the dressing room, which is always a bad sign. He really does need to pull it round, doesn't he? Well, I think you're looking at the, the context of the season. You know, there's, there's managers out there. You know, I know a lot of people talk about Pochettino and the more these results continue, the louder the calls for, for a new manager will be to come in. I, th- I think the issues are is that the same things seem to be happening over and over again. As you say, you look at how porous United were against Palace. Okay, so you think okay, Brighton, you know, should should maybe shore shore up, but then Brighton are able to penetrate United on various occasions. The same with uh, with, with with Spurs, and it just seems as though United are just reliant on individual brilliance and moments of quality from their four players to get them out of a hole, or obviously penalty kicks from from Bruno Fernandez or you know a bit of quality from him, and and that's just not going to be enough. It's not going to cut it. I think got away with it in Project Restart after lockdown and, you know, look looked quite good. But as I say, when you break it down, it was purely moments of individual brilliance that were getting United through games. You look at them structurally, and as I said, the same things keep happening over and over again. And until those things are addressed, we're going to keep seeing these defensive frailties. Yeah, because when you look at it, you still, you go back to, to square one, which is basically recruitment. And, 
you know, the implications of inadequate recruitment. Why let Chris Morning go at the moment? You know, that that didn't seem to add up. And I suppose, you know, you look at you know, Manchester United, and, and A, we've talked about this in the past, almost ad nauseam, their, their need for a director of football. When you've got someone like Edwin van der Sar, who is perfectly, but I mean perfectly suited to that job, why don't they just go out and get him? It's, it is bizarre, isn't it, that, that they haven't filled that post. They, they've said that they want they want a director of football, I believe, and, and yeah, just go out and get them. They're, they're, yeah, like you say, van der Sar is one of... One of a few former players that could fill that role very, very nicely indeed. I've got to say, I think the next few weeks are going to be a major test of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's coaching and tactical nous because I think most of us can see where you know where it's going wrong. The the fullbacks have been badly isolated, and I think part of that is to do with having strikers essentially playing on the wings. So you know. He doesn't want those guys tracking back to fullback, which which often leaves them isolated 2v1. In midfield, the only way to remedy that is if you've got a really industrious midfield where the, where the midfielders can shift across to lend a hand. And let's face it, they're just using one, aren't they? It's, it's, it's yeah. either Matic or McTominay. It's Pogba and, and Fernandes, and, and, and that's not what you want them to be doing. So I just think he needs to look at the, the structure of the team. You touched on it, Rich, structure. He needs to sort of start again here. Wouldn't surprise me if there's a change of system. Cavani's not available, is he, this weekend? So with Martial suspended, maybe we'll see two, you know, two up top and a change of shape. They certainly need to do something different because, again, as Richard said, if you keep making the same mistakes, the same thing's going to happen, aren't they? It's daft. Mm. What about Spurs, Rich? You know, there's obviously been tension between... Jose Mourinho and Gareth Southgate over Harry Kane, which is probably unlikely to have been eased because he did the full 90 minutes last night. Where do you see Tottenham at this stage of their development? Is Mourinho going to prove us all wrong? I, I think so. I think I've, Tottenham are look, looking good. I th- I'm liking the look of them this season. I think, you know, the, the likes of Ndombele in midfield seems to be coming on quite well. been very impressed with him. And, and, and yeah, as you say, that the Kane-Son axis... We saw it to devastating effect against Southampton and and and, and against United as well. And uh, you say Mourinho seems to have got them them set up in a way in which you know they're looking to to hurt teams. I mean, we all saw the documentary where you know he wanted them to be you know in, more ruthless in, in 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 nicer terms. And you know, I think we are we are seeing that now. I mean, even with you know the Mello incident where um, Martial got sent off. I think beforehand we wouldn't have really seen that from a, from from a Spurs team that kind of nastiness that kind of gamesmanship. But I mean, even that I mean, people may not agree with it, but it does give you that just that added extra you know couple of percent which which does take things forward really. And as I say you've got Bell coming in now. I don't think he will start against West Ham, but again we all know his quality. I think he will hit the ground running when when he does come in eventually. So. I think things are looking exciting for them. I'm, I'm, I'm been impressed with them so far. Mm. What are the realistic expectations of Gareth Bale? Right? Well, it's hard to say because we don't know how much he's going to play. Is he? Can he stay fit? If, if Gareth Bale can stay fit, he can be one of the best players in the Premier League. Absolutely, no doubt about that. He's he's an amazing talent, and I still think he's got the ability to score great goals, to influence matches, and when you look at how sharp. Kane and, and Son Heung-Ming have been since that, that sort of labour performance against Everton. They've been so sharp. 
chucking Gareth Bale to the mix, and you've got you've got an awesome front line, haven't you? And it hurts me to say that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is that is exciting. So um, yeah, now Gareth Bale, we shouldn't underestimate his capabilities. He is an elite footballer, and yeah, yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing him deliver some special moments. I just fear that injuries will hamper his progress. Yeah. Now, I know you're not a fan, Aid, so I'll ask the question to Richard. <laughs> your, your, your thoughts on David Moyes being back? You know, as I said, I don't think Aid is his, his number one well, buddy, but... Yeah, uh, but no, no, no. On that, on that, yeah, I've been very critical of Moyes uh, in the past, but credit where it's due, Mike. He he is making some really good decisions at West Ham, and, and they are playing with an aggression that I saw in Moyes' Everton team. I just think that, he, you know, his teams have lacked intensity in recent seasons. He's, he's got that back now. And you know why? I think part of it is he's made some really big decisions. He's he's left Noble out of the team, which is, is not easy to do. He's left some star talent, Felipe Anderson. He's let him go. He's sacrificed him. He's got hardworking players that want to buy into, into what he's asking. And by making those tough calls, he, he's getting a tune out of his players. So, so look, yeah, I don't think he's... Yeah, amazing as a manager, but credit where he's due, he's having a very good season so far. So there you go. Floors clear it. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't, I, 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 I'm going to record that one. I thought that was just uh, <laughs> fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so, Rich, you know, the one one thing I... Uh, he does have a dour image, doesn't he? But there was an interview recently where he spoke really well about the loneliness of management and all the associated mental health issues in football... You know, I do think he, he deserves a bit more credit than uh, A did until about five minutes ago. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's changed, Aid. What, what, what's going on? <laughs> no, I think I think I think uh, Aid hit nail on the head there. I think he, he, you know, at West Ham they did have a lot of you kind of call them luxury players, I guess. And Moyes has almost just said, okay, look, we need to knuckle down because last season they simply weren't good enough and got in players who you know provide the energy, that intensity, that that can you know. First of all, make them a bit more solid at the back, but also a bit more, a bit more sure going forward as well. And you know, the likes of Antonio up front, who just provides obviously great work rate. Obviously, he's quick and he's strong, and he sets the tone and the tempo for the rest of the side. Obviously, you've got Declan Rice providing the industry in midfield as well, and he's really trying to build a team around those kind of players. And it's proven proven dividend so far. You know, it's interesting you touch on the loneliness of management. I know Chris Hutton back in football which is great for him and I know when he was out of a job he spoke a lot about being almost like that that loneliness almost and you know just studying football going to the library by himself during the day and watching old clips and just trying to improve but um it, it, it can be very difficult especially when things aren't going well yeah it gets the best of them doesn't it Aid? yeah it's a tough job very tough job isn't it I mean it's it's so so difficult you've got to be You've got to look after your mental health if, if you're if you're a manager in work or or out of work, and it's just so demanding. I don't think people realise that. Obviously, people realise the pressure, but they don't realise the skill set that a football manager needs to be good. That it's not just about being a good coach or not understanding football. You've got to be a psychologist. You've got to know which buttons to press. You've got to think about every word you you speak in front of the players because footballers let me tell you we seize on anything you say that's a little bit questionable and they they will seize on that weakness so look I, I yeah I 
I don't think I I could be cut out for it. It takes takes a very you know unique type of person to be able to handle the responsibility of of managing a Premier League football team or any football team for that matter. Mm. Manchester City, uh, Rich, they've got Arsenal at home. Interesting that Kevin De Bruyne opted out of Belgium's squad after Wembley. Do you think that was significant? It was almost it almost seemed as though he got a quiet word from Pep. Look, you've played six games, minimal pre-season. Why don't you come home and just put your feet up? Do you think those sort of decisions are going to be more likely as the season progresses? I think so, especially, you know, you've got the another international break, which is crazy, in, in, again know, in 20, November. 24 days' time. <laughs> it just, it's just relentless. And, you know, I mean, look at Man City's next well, upcoming games, Arsenal, Porto, West Ham, Marseille, Sheffield United... Olympiacos and then Liverpool before the international break. I mean, it is a tough, tough schedule. I mean, you would expect Man City to win most of those games, but you so say you're looking at the intensity that the game is played at, especially the way City like to play. I think we will see more players, you know, as you say, opting out of those international games, especially, you know, the friendlies. I mean, to the, the, the we all know the the kind of impact that the travelling has on the body and as you say, the, the intensity that the games are played at, especially over the last couple of seasons, we are going to see players getting injured. So there is a need for duty of care. And as I say, I don't think the Bruyne will, will be the only one. I know um, Marino tried to play a few games to, to kind of get Kane rested as much as possible because we know about his injury record also. So it's probably something we will be seeing a lot more moving forward. Yeah, you know, Thomas Partey's only just being introduced to his new Arsenal colleagues today, isn't he? He's done well with Ghana, two assists, and I think he's created about six chances in, in, in his um, uh, spell with them recently. I'm going to have to come up with this, Aid, but what will he bring to the party? <laughs> um, plenty, I hope. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a high-pedigree high footballer, no doubt about it. He is... He has all the qualities that Arsenal have lacked, really, in a in an orthodox central midfielder. He's got power, and the existing guys that aren't as powerful as he is. Obviously, very strong, athletic. He's got the tactical intelligence. We know that he's worked with Simeone defensively. Knows exactly where to position himself. So we know that he will screen that back three or back four better than than probably the other guys that have been there. But he's not just that. And this is what's so exciting. He's also very poised in possession, you know, very calm. We saw that against Liverpool in that, those two legs last season and, and in La Liga regularly. And also he's got that drive. He's, he's got the ability to surge forward through the heart of the midfield. And Arsenal certainly haven't had that that kind of player for a long, long time. So I'm excited to, to see him. It's obviously a tough start City away. And he will need an adaptation process. You know, he won't be brilliant straight away, I guess. But, but yeah, over over time, I'm expecting big things from from Thomas Partey. He is perfect addition to the Arsenal midfield. Yeah. What about Eddie and Ketia, Rich? You know, he's broken the England under twenty one scoring record this week. Is he worth a start? I, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, I wouldn't wouldn't put it past Arteta to, to to put him in a starting lineup. I mean. You know, in Inkessa, you've got a player who loves to play in the shoulder. And I love strikers who like scoring goals in the box and getting all kinds of goals. You know, obviously his uh, his interplay is, is, is decent. He links up the play well. But when he when the ball's in the box, that's where he comes alive. His finishing's great. And as I mentioned, he scores all kinds of goals. Tap-ins, headers, 
You know, we saw his goal against West Ham where, you know, it was a nicely taken finish there. Lacazette has started the season well, of course, but again, you look at those misses against Liverpool, you know, these are key moments where you need your striker to be putting the ball away. And Keta has been doing that, as you say, watch him a lot through through Arsenal's academy and England youth games as well. And and he just brings that 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 new sense of life, you know, that that uh, that verve. He's quick. And I think he can, he can uh, give City's backline problems. Just the fact he will help stretch the play as well, provide more space for the midfielders to, to create. And, uh, you know, we, we, we saw how Arsenal opened up City in the semi-final last season in the FA Cup where they played the ball up from the back and they stretched the play up front and, and they really sliced City open. And I think Nketiah can be key to that if he's given the opportunity. Yeah, talking of opportunity... A lot of people saying this morning that uh, Jack Grealish should have had more opportunity for England. Now, he's back to club business, Villa Leicester. I suppose if there was ever any danger of hype about him, it's been sort of dampened down over the last week, hasn't it, Aid? Yeah, because we haven't seen him. But but yeah, I would join in with the criticism of Gareth Southgate not, not using him. He, he had a fabulous game and, and then was dumped, really, for, for one of a breath, better expression. It's quite a snub, wasn't it, to put Calvert-Lewin, who's been excellent as a centre-forward this season. I know that he can play on the left. We've seen him do that for Everton. But he's got into the England squad as a number nine. For him to put him on on the left instead of Grealish would have would have angered me if I was Jack Grealish. So, so yeah, I expect him to be determined to really, between now and the next international break, to to continue his form. I mean, he's a special talent. He started this season amazingly well. Last season, his stats were off the scale in terms of creativity. So yeah, I, I think he's absolutely deserving of a place in England England squad. And, and I think Gareth Southgate would be crazy to dismiss him because you need all sorts in football. He's got pace with Rashford and Sancho, great skill as well with those guys, with, with Sterling as well. But what he hasn't got too much of is, is those guys that take up unusual positions and that can carry the ball with real quality inside the opposition half. Guys that can draw fouls. And and and, and Grealish brings all that to the table. I, I think you need someone that's got different characteristics in a, in a squad for a tournament. Grealish, if he's fit, he's in my squad. But, but listening to Gareth, I just don't think he's a fan. Yeah, and that's the case, isn't it? I think players you know, go in into fashion and out of fashion, don't they? And, you know, sometimes through injury, they fade fade away. And in that context, Rich, I just want like like you to please just dwell a little bit on Nathaniel Klein. He signed a short-term contract at Palace, who've got their derby against Brighton at the weekend. One, he strikes me as a good man. But secondly, he hasn't had good breaks, has he? No, he's been really unlucky with, with his injuries because, you know, when, when he was signed by Liverpool, we thought, OK, this is a great step up for him. You know, he proved his quality at Southampton. So, I think I think Palace will be a good a good uh, a good situation for him. I think you know we know about his quality, obviously defensively first and foremost, and you know we we know how Palace need that. But also going forward as well, he he will provide you know an, an, another attacking dimension on that right flank. And and going forward, I mean, I know the Chelsea game they weren't great, but um. You know, they do have exciting players. So to be backed up at, at fullback with, with the likes of Klein, you know, making those 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 overlapping runs will help take Palace's game to another level. You just hope that he stays fit and, and maintains his consistency, really. 
Yeah, certainly do. Two matches this weekend. I'm, I'm going to be really unkind here. They're probably the first relegation six-pointers of the season. You've got Sheffield United, Fulham and West Brom, Burnley. Let's look at the uh, Sheffield United and Fulham, if we could initially, aid. Are United better placed in terms of their squad and management to just pull themselves around a bit? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't see them falling off a cliff. I know it's been a really difficult start to the season, but just look at the nature of their defeats. They've they've been really narrow. It's been fine margins, really, with them. They, they battered Leeds at times. Meslier was a man of the match for them in that game. So now I expect Sheffield United to, to beat Fulham and to get their season up and running this weekend. There are issues defensively. Obviously, they've lost O'Connell, which is big. The left side centre-half. They've lost the keeper. So that's a big change. Henderson is probably better than, than Ramsdale. So, so there are one or two issues there. But look, they've signed Rian Brewster. Aren't they for... Was it £23 million? Pounds? I mean, that is... Yeah, it was a club that, record, yeah. That is... That is... That is... That is uh, a gamble, really, for a club like Sheffield United. They've obviously got a lot of faith in him. I like what I see with Brewster, but but we don't know, do we, yet how he's going to take to, to Premier League football. But I'm excited to, to see what he can bring. No, I, I think Sheffield United won't, won't be in a relegation battle. I don't think Burnley will either, even though... Yeah, but they'll be both will probably be lower than than last season. Yeah, for for me, Fulham and West Brom. Unfortunately, the writing's on the wall already for those guys. Yeah, West Brom. It looks like they're going to pay fifteen million pounds for Carlin Grant from Huddersfield. Good player. Whether he's worth fifteen, I wouldn't. I would probably say no. I suppose for clubs like Albion, Rich, it's the difficult thing, and Fulham to a degree as well is the, the ability to break out of that yo-yo cycle, you know, just a bit too good for the championship, but not quite good enough for the Premier League. Yeah, I think the issue that West Brom have and have had is when they do get promoted, it's it's really strengthening in those key areas. It's almost like, OK, it's great, you know, showing faith in you know, the team that did get them promoted. But uh, as we all know, the Premier League is, comp- is a completely, you know, different challenge, different animal. And if they don't, adding that that quality, especially defensively, they will get found out. We saw in the Chelsea game that they, you know, they, they can provide a threat. They have got exciting players, you know, the likes of the main Sawyers in midfield and uh, obviously Callum Robinson up front is, is a handful. But as you say, defensively, probably a bit below the standard that we're kind of looking for at, at, at the top level. And I think that's been the issue. Championship level... Great to see, but uh, when they make the step up, it is, it's been difficult and I think it'll be a long season for them. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much movement we get before the window closes at 5pm uh, on Friday. And in that context, Abe, we, you know, we need to look at Project Picture, which was rejected by the, the Premier League clubs. There's going to be some sort of strategy review involving all 20. Bailout also for the lower league clubs on the horizon. What needs to happen both immediately but also in the short to medium term, i.e. by Christmas, because this isn't going to go away, is it? It's not going to go away, no. I mean, yeah, this it's welcome news that they've come to, together to, to provide funds to, to help out the League One and League Two clubs, especially in the context of them losing loads of money themselves. So so I'm pleased that, that they've done that. I mean, they had to. I mean, the PR out of Project Big Picture was just shocking, wasn't it? It just it was so greedy, so opportunistic from from those involved. 
that you know in this especially in in this awful period for them to be sort of vault, seen as vultures looking to swoop and take take power in return for for saving the EFL just was such a bad look so i would like to see them go a little bit further i mean the championship clubs have been left out here and 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 i i think that the championship clubs are are in are in dire need of of assistance as well I mean, there are so many things that need to happen, Mike, over a period of time. There were good ideas in the big picture, big good ideas in, in, the, in, the, in the distribution of cash and, 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 and the, the help for the EFL and, and to, to get their houses in order. There was a lot of good ideas there, but, but it can't come at the expense of handing power to, to billionaire owners that, that, that will have too much self-interest. So, so look, for now, it, it's a start. It's welcome news that the PFA are helping to fund the COVID test. Finally, well done to them. I would still call on the government to, to step in here. And I, I know that they're saying football's awash with money and, and that they it's a bad look for them to give taxpayers money to, to football. But I'm telling you now that I, I, I'm not convinced that what's been offered is going to be enough to save a few of these teams. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen, Rich? I'm the same boat as, as Aid, really. I think, obviously, it's been great that you know, support has been given to, to the League One and League, League Two sides. I would like to see championship support being given as well. Purely as well, I mean, just for the reasons I was speaking about previously, you know, in terms of with West Brom, for example, as an example, coming up, you know, ha- having the resources to to compete at the, at the top level should the team get promoted. They don't have those resources in place. It'll be really difficult for them. And, and also as well, just a kind of, kind of day-to-day running of clubs. I think... You know, a lot of people forecasting that that club, a few clubs may fall into difficulty after Christmas, and you just have to look at the wider impact of that, not just on club, but on you know the wider businesses around the football clubs as well, who who uh, kind of need that kind of revenue, especially on match days. So I think I think the the, the future is difficult to tell because I think they're still keen to uh, you know things like scrapping the league cup and and the uh, community shield. But again, it's all really geared to helping out the teams at the top of the tree. And as you mentioned, Mike, you know, giving those subsidies in return for power isn't really a good look. Um, and it's, it's, that's a dangerous precedent as well. Yeah. Can I, can I just add, by the way, in the short term, what also needs to be done is that, that, that this pay-per-view figure needs to needs to be lowered. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's way too high. And bring in... The, the FSA, the Football Supporters Association, representatives of clubs, they need to be spoken to as a matter of urgency to get their side their side of this because I think their input is going to be very, very important moving forward. Seems like a no-brainer, that, doesn't it, really? I mean, you need to have the, the fans' voice at the top table as well because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be paying the money, as you mentioned, for this pay-per-view stuff. And, and just moving forward as well, to not have fan representation at these kind of level of meetings seems a bit of a scandal, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, I say it's such a such a huge issue, and it's something I'm going to return to right at the end of the show, but putting stuff together. Aid, what's your thought for the day? It's left-footers and the lack of. I mean, we've just seen two two England games in a row with, with no left-footers in, in the starting 11, and, and it just drives me bonkers, really, that, first of all, that Gareth Southgate couldn't see that that was an issue, was happy to go and do it again just a few days later. Um, you know, the, the flow of the team is going to be effective. I know we beat Belgium, but it wasn't a good performance. And it was it was worse against Denmark. 
you need balance in a football team and having left footers is, is crucial to that. You can move the ball so much quicker and smoother. And, and, and I would take it back to the coaches and, and the way that we, we coach in this country. Kids are being taken under club's wings at seven, eight years of age, aren't they? There is long enough, surely, for them to, to, to work on becoming two-footed players. I find it just a, a scandal, really, that, that, that so few players at the very highest level are comfortable using both feet. And I think that, that is, it should be a prerequisite for coaches, youth coaches in particular. It should be at the top of the curriculum work on making these kids comfortable with both feet because I, I can't for the life of me work out why why that's not happening. They've got time. So, I mean, one thing they've got is is time to work with these these players, and it, and it feels to me as if that that's been you know criminally neglected. Well, I I needed help on both feet. Be perfectly honest, but there we go. <laughs> um, uh, Richard, what do you want to get off your chest? Um, we touched on it earlier, just about the kind of mental health within the footballing space, really. I know you, you spoke about Moyes earlier, and I, I know a lot of talk has been on Harry Maguire, especially after, um, you know, his red card yesterday and him having a kind of, uh, kind of weight of the world on his shoulders. And I would just like to see that becoming a more consistent theme. I know, obviously, footballers are paid a lot of money and people would say that they should be able to deal with these things and obviously there there is you know that element of resilience that that is attached to it but as you say there is a duty of care to these players that that we need to look at and I'm just pleased that it's now becoming a a kind of you know it's more we, we seem to be more comfortable talking about you know these things and 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 looking into like almost you know players' welfare, and you just want to see it applied more consistently. Really, you know, I mentioned I think previously the likes of Lingard, for example. He he, he has been through a lot, but you know the, these things were almost not ignored, but he was a, a a source of ridicule for for a lot of fans and 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 you know some some colleagues alike even. So, you know, you just have to kind of look at a bigger picture. As you say, we know these players are are resilient, and you know they've got the temperament to. To, to battle adversity and get through it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they are now. But it's it's good to see at least that it's coming into the conversation and, you know, long may it continue. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, for me, it's farewell project, big picture. It's not been very nice knowing you. Kudos to the Premier League clubs who forced Liverpool and Manchester United to back down. There's still a lot of defiant talk from the top two, or more specifically, their apologists. Now, they will come again. You know, that's football real politics. They'll come back with refined ideas to still increase their power. Now, how about going the other way? Call their bluff. Dare them to form a Super League. Present their players with the prospect of not playing for their countries due to FA and FIFA sanction. Now, the pyramid could still work. 14 Premier League clubs plus 72 would work easily. How about a pyramid? 20 in the Premier League, 20 in the Championship, 22 in League One, 24 in League Two. I think that'd work. What are your ideas? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Richard and Adrian and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Podcast.